see some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. When it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good-looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got yeah, God, yeah, God. Welcome, everybody. It is Spit. It's Tuesday morning, November 24th, the week of Thanksgiving celebration here in the United States. And uh, I am Scott Bass, along with my good friend David Lee Scales. Good morning, David. Good morning, Scott. You powered by Lion's Mane Mushroom right now? I am. I've been, I've been on the lion's mane. I went straight to the source. So tell me, what is mushroom from a lion's mane? I really have no idea. I've I've completely bought in just on the um, the hype of the Laird coffee supplement and this little old Japanese lady, who I was somehow or another found out I was drinking the Laird stuff, and she's like oh, what's in it? And I go, I think lion's mane. And she just goes, well, I just put, I put lion's mane in my coffee every morning. Here it is right here. And she, she brought out the secret sauce. So I just went straight to the source and bought the lion's mane. And probably cheaper than the layered version, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. That there's like a four ounce bag that I got for five bucks. Crazy. Um, Laird's, Laird's stock price is at $50 and 53 cents. That's what I wanted to know. That was my next question. What, he's what's he's up. He's up. I think last time he was around 49 bucks. What uh, did it open at? Uh, let me see. The 52-week low was 31 bucks. Wow. That was the time to buy, perhaps. It opened, opened today at 49 bucks. At any rate, honestly, based on memory, I thought it opened around 33. So it's up yeah. to 50 now. Anyways, uh, what is Lion's Mane? You're drinking it. You don't even know what it is? I just know that this older, super sharp Japanese woman said that she thinks it might be the secret to her, her uh, mental facility. I know we're not supposed to stereotype. Um, however, <laughs> <laughs> anything that an older Japanese woman tells you in terms of health and longevity, I would heed. And implement immediately, yesterday even. Agreed. Agreed. Which is what I did. You know what's weird about diet? And I know we're now going to hear tons of feedback from dietitians who listen. Oh, Oh, yes, we are. (laughs) Here's what's weird about diet is that I feel like I grew up in an era where they were like, don't eat rice. Like white rice is nothing but carbohydrate and it's not, we don't want to eat carbohydrates in our society. And so avoid rice, you know, it doesn't have any nutritional value. Look at Japan. They eat rice three meals a day and they live longer and healthier and lower, you know, incidence of heart disease and obesity and all that sort of stuff. And they live on rice. So how does that work? Well, even more importantly, they've been doing it for thousands of years, not just a couple of hundred years. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that culture. Yeah. So fascinating. The world doesn't make sense to me often. I got you drinking lion's mane. I got Laird <laughs> becoming a billionaire. 
By the way, the only way I'm going back to the Laird stuff is if somehow Laird gets a little old Japanese lady to pitch it. Then I might go back. They, they should just replace him, put her on the cover, <laughs> superimposed backwards with a stand-up paddle getting tubed at chokes. That would be so hot. I'd be Laird, stoked on that. Laird being superimposed backwards is enough for you to abandon the product alone. No, that's uh, what makes me love the product, that it's just so mainstream that, you know what I mean? True. But it's kind of like, whatever. By the way, speaking of Japan, Supernova in the East 5, that's a V I'm making, has been released by Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. So if you're a fan, I've been listening to, uh, I've been listening to it. And it's amazing. And oh, by the way, it's very Australia centric. So if you're an Australian listening to this, you, you know, if you want a, a moment of pride for your nation state and it's um, valorous uh, fight that they put up uh, in the South Pacific during World War II, you're going to want to listen. So a listener reminded us that that just uh, launched or published. Um, yeah. I've been off Dan Carlin for a while now. Like I listened for a couple of years straight whenever he would drop something, but I've actually just kind of gotten off of it just because it's such a commitment. It feels like a real burden to actually listen. But you were saying you listen at 1.5 speed. Well, I was going to just, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I believe I listen to every single podcast at 1.5. Really? Yeah. It cuts, obviously it cuts the time way shorter, right? Yeah. Like I, I listen, I'll listen to this podcast at 1.5. I'll listen to all my podcasts at 1.5 and I don't notice a difference. You, you retain all the information that you would if you listen to yeah. full speed. Huh. All right. Um, okay. Back to Lion's Mane. Final, final question. <laughs> I'm drinking it right now. Like, do you think, the- so do you think this was a slight too layered because his brother's name is Lion? So were they like, Laird's doing this in the market, we're going to make a lion version and just completely undercut him? No, because I think it's L-Y-O-N, right? It's not yeah. L-I-O-N. Yeah, but then they could have got caught with a lawsuit. So they made it L-I-O-N to avoid that. <laughs> but then <laughs> hip surfers like you and I would know. Billy Hamilton's right now screaming. You've got quite a conspiracy going there. Yep. I think that Japanese woman's up to something. By the way, I have some breaking news that's pretty breaking that I want to get into before we read um, comments from last week. So I have it. And by the way, this is probably going to hit the newswire later this morning, but I, I know about it now. I was told about it yesterday. So Burton, the company Burton, who owns Channel Islands, is selling Channel Islands back to the Channel Islands employees. As you know, last year, Jake Burton passed away. Um, and so Britt Merrick, son of Al Merrick, is going to be the, C- the CEO of Channel Island Surfboards. The employees of Channel Islands and the team riders are the investors and the owners of Channel Island Surfboards. So it's kind of gone full circle from the Merrick family to this mega corp known as Burton now being purchased already it's already occurred and the Merrick family and the employees and the crew of guys there in Santa Barbara that run that factory are now the owners of Channel Island surfboards 
And um, they're going to be focusing on what they've been doing a great job of, which is the domestic board building and uh, eventually get another world champion on their boards, probably sooner rather than later. They have a couple, they have Lakey Peterson and um, I think another gal on their equipment. So anyway, that's the sage. Sage has been. Yes. Sage. Sage. So that's, that's my big breaking news. You heard it here first. I know we won't publish until probably noon today, but by then it'll probably be on the wire. But uh, breaking news. Right it's here. huge. It's huge news. Is Scott Anderson still there? And are like all the employees are staying, obviously. if they're All the of those people are now the owners of Channel Islands. Um, this is fascinating news. And firstly, I'll just be straight out. I'm surprised that Britt is interested in the role of CEO. So he's taking on a bigger position there than he had when Burton was owner. He's stepping up. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And um, uh, I guess you're kind of thinking maybe that was the position Scott Anderson should have taken. Um, but, and I don't know what the roles are of everyone. And that might just be, um, you know, more will be revealed. I, I don't have any insight on to how the breakdown of, of the um, well, not that Brit isn't qualified, and certainly he grew up in it, but uh, his interest or time was always diffused between he's a pastor of a church, he's also shaping surfboards, and this is a global brand. So I'm wondering if maybe he's eliminated some of those other responsibilities so that he could focus on um, running the brand. You know, I'm curious. Well, if he this might has, warrant a podcast conversation with him, if he has or has not. I think it makes tons of branding sense to to position him as the CEO. Britt Merrick, son of Al Merrick, is now running Channel Islands. That is just smart. Yeah. You know what I mean? Regardless of how much actual responsibility he takes on, but to put him as the figurehead makes tons and tons of sense. Regardless of how much chief executing he actually does. Um, well, I think this is a good move right out of the gates. As you say it, I think any um, wrenching back of control from a corporate overseer, I have a feeling is good for the consumer. Like generally decisions like that get made or uh, acquisitions get made to synthesize distribution and supply chain, right? And then maybe some of the in-house stuff gets folded in together too, like accounting and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, in terms of brand identity and also in terms of the consumer experience, smaller is better. It's just easier to manage things when you're smaller and kind of there's fewer people in the boardroom, essentially, is what it comes down to. You know, uh, art generally isn't made or even high quality product isn't made by committee. It's made by artisans. And so if you have Brit, Scott, um, you know, a couple of the other guys there making the decisions, then I think that just makes things a lot more simple. You get to the end goal a lot quicker. Yeah, for sure. You're more nimble and um, they certainly are. And, and I will say that, you know, while <clears throat> when Burton first came on board, it was certainly looked at by sort of the salty um, surf establishment as, oh, okay, it's the, you know, the corporatization of, of a really great brand and it's too bad. No, you know, their sellouts or whatever the negative feedback was. 
um, that existed. But I will say that Burton did some good things there in regards to, I think they built out a much larger facility. Um, and so for this to now come full circle is kind of a blessing in disguise for, you know, like that initial purchase that Burton made, because as I say, they, they invested some of the Burton resources into the CI situation there in Santa Barbara. So now that the CI guys are in control again, they have like an incredible system there. They have an incredible setup. So it's kind of cool. It's very cool to be able to kind of take that capital influx for a decade or however long it's been and grow the business, but then have kind of the infrastructure built when you come back and get, you know, retain yeah. ownership. Then that's pretty amazing. And they've got a really solid crew, at least in my eyes. Um, you know, of course they have the Godowskis brothers who are pretty marketable still. Um, and they have Mikey February, right? And of course they have Dane Reynolds riding. I think Dane's riding the CI yeah. board still. Yeah. So they, they have a solid crew and, and, and we mentioned the women on the team. And I think that, I think that this is the kind of move that's going to make a young, you know, potential like a QS guy that's that's got tons of potential, um, maybe get him on the CI equipment, and we see a Channel Islands male world champion, um, you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well. But I, mean, I guess my question to you is, do you think they need that? Like when you look at their team, they got February Dane Reynolds, uh, the Godowskis brothers, uh, Sage, and um, who was the other guy? Lakey. Uh, yeah, Lakey. And, um, and then they've got like guys like Bobby Martinez, I think still riding their boards, right? And so up and, I guess my – Up and comer, Aton Osborne. Okay, that's great. So, so I guess my question is, does the surfboard brand need a world champion these days? Uh, need? The answer is no. But their legacy is with endless world champions from, you know, Tom Carroll, um, Tom Curran to all of Slater's wins. So it'd be a shame to just not continue to foster that program. Yeah. You know, like if you have that legacy, with which, which by the way, no other brand does, like they have more world titles than anybody else, then why wouldn't you continue to invest and just own that space. So it, you don't need it, but yeah, it's super valuable real estate they already own. Um, well, so hey, even as we were talking about the Burton thing, um, or when Burton had ownership, we kind of painted it in a negative light. The reality is CI maintained all yeah. of their own decision-making throughout all of that. Like in terms yeah. of navigating a corporate takeover, they navigated it as good as you can. They still employed all the employees that they had prior and made those decisions kind of in-house. And it seems like Burton stayed out of the way creatively. Well, I think at the end they did. I think initially there was some friction. You know, Burton, I think, had some people that came in and were kind of like, okay, this is how we do it here, you know, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And they quickly realized that nothing was getting done in the in the manner that it needed to get done because... I don't think they had buy-in from from the crew of guys up there in Santa Barbara. There was some animosity, I believe. Again, I, I don't. By the way, I'm just kind of reaching here. Yeah. Certainly, um, Scott Anderson and those guys can speak to that more. But that that's all sort of past history, of course. Um, but you're right. They did sort of sort it out and kind of iron out the wrinkles there. And kind of the guys that 
whoever it was, maybe it was Jake Burton, but whoever was in charge of the situation there just kind of went, you know what, these guys know what they're doing. Let them run it. Yeah. And, and once they took their hands off of it, it became, it felt more like, you know, a homegrown um, enterprise, which it is. Well, hey, this kind of tangentially relates to the JS story out of Oceanside. Have you, did you follow this at all or? Yeah, I've seen a little bit of this. Um, it, I think it popped up on my Instagram feed somewhere. But yeah, um, apparently some... Go ahead, you, you, you lay it out. Yeah, this is... I'll just read snippets from sandiegoreader.com. Um, basically, JS Surfboards imported 3,000 surfboards into the US last year. And those surfboards went into retailers, a lot of whom are in San Diego, like Hanson Surfboards. And so they decided for this year, especially during the boom, they'll just set up a warehouse, a distribution center here. So they bought, or I don't know if they bought it, but they rented out an old um, 6,000 square foot warehouse, half a mile from the beach in Oceanside. And Oceanside, by the way, is kind of the largest surfboard manufacturing city in the U.S., I think. Does that sound right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and so they're basically going to be using this location as a warehouse and distribution center shipping out imported is the key detail here, $800 surfboards to the rest of the country. So the JS boards are made in Australia and Thailand. They're shipping those over. And again, they were shipping those over prior or 3000 of them prior and placing them in retail in this new model. They're just using this building in uh, Oceanside to distribute and warehouse and um, so local board builders basically defaced the property. So there was a big mural. It was an old hot rod shop. It was Pops Hot Rod Garage was the previous building, but it had been vacant for over a year. And Pops Hot Rod Garage had a big mural painted on it that was kind of iconic for locals. So when JS came in, they painted over that mural, painted the building all black, put the JS tractor logo, and um, apparently offended some of the locals by doing that. And local, presumably, uh, board builders or surf industry people tagged the side of the building and said, basically, F off, uh, get out of here, go back to Australia. T-shirts were designed that were a knockoff of the JS logo that said, built for greed. And instead of Jason Stevens Industries, it says, just shit industries. And... Um, Ultimately, the story is JS is being met with quite a bit of resentment from the local board building community in Oceanside. So, Scott, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I guess first and foremost, I, full transparency, um, JS is a client of mine at the boardroom show. So um, I have to tiptoe around this one a little bit, but I will say that that article um, – Written by my friend Ken, by the way, Hanger18 on Instagram. Um, Ken did a really good job because he, he followed up with one of the most iconic Oceanside shapers ever, which is Gary Linden. And I believe the article speaks with Gary, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And Gary's and so, not disgruntled. Yeah. Gary's like going, hey, man, we're all killing it. Like, we can't even keep up with demand. I, I, I kid you not, if you try to order a surfboard right now, you're looking at 12 weeks to get a custom surfboard. 
And, oh, by the way, you might be able to speak to this. I heard there's a shortage of blanks. Apparently, one of the chemical companies in Houston got overrun by one of those hurricanes and shut down. And so there's a limit on, I think it's TDI, one of the chemicals that's put into the, the foam. So I, I don't know if there's a shortage of blanks. I actually reached out to Marty at Arctic, and he said, no, we have plenty of foam. But my point is, is that what Gary Linden was saying about this article and the JS thing is like, we're swamped. Like hard, you, hard goods are through the roof. In fact, I would suggest to you, David, I've been chewing on this a little bit. I think the used surfboard marketplace is going to spike like prices. I mean, I, be, don't sell your used surfboard for too little. I think you can get more for it than you realize right now. There's a, there's a need for surfboards in the marketplace, which blows my mind. I mean, I, I can't believe, you know, how many people are buying surfboards, which is this great thing, right? Like, this is great. Now, um, in regards to JS, they've been around for a while. Um, they had a they had a little um, showroom thing there near Airport Road, I believe, in, in one of the little, you know, business park things. That's where they were originally distributing from, right? Is that right, Dave? Do you know? I'm not familiar with that. Um, well, anyway, what they did wrong here is screw with that mural. Like if they wouldn't have done anything with the mural, if they would have respected the mural and came in and said, hey, this thing's cool. This, you know, this thing's been here forever. You know, we're, we're going to leave it up. They would have really endeared themselves to some of those guys that are like, oh, I can't believe they did that to the mural. You know, like I think it's that simple. Uh, so I'm not sure that that, I mean, I think you're right. That's part of it. I think the bigger issue here is that JS's business model of importing boards from Thailand is where the local board builders probably have a bigger problem. I think there's an opportunity, like we were talking about um, Channel Islands and they've tried various business models, but the one that they're currently implementing is if there's boards, if Channel Islands boards are um, for sale in Europe, they're made in Europe. So rather than importing them and flooding the market, they go over there and they hire local board builders to make the product to their specs. And so that would be one method. But obviously, those are decisions that are made kind of at a high level. And JS has decided to pursue this kind of Thai manufacturing model, which is his business. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that you can fault him for the business decision. Like, look, he has a certain amount of demand on for his boards around the world and he's making a decision for the best way to get those boards to people at the lowest cost and still maintain the quality that they're accustomed to. And those boards were already in the US. Like I said, 3000 boards were being imported into the US prior. They just didn't have a distribution hub for it. So maybe now this distribution hub will be 6000 boards instead of 3000. And that's what people are mad about is that the numbers going up. Um, I understand why the other people are mad. I'm just saying, I don't know. They're well, look, JS used to have their boards. Like Jason came over here and set up local guys to build their boards. So you think Stu Kenson was doing them. And, and I, and correct me here, David, but I think the articles, I think Heath Walker, who's the, who's the USA president basically said that the J like the American boards weren't up to JS's standards. Doesn't it say something like that there? It says 
quote, we tried to do it domestically once, but it didn't work out for the brand. I'm pushing for that to happen, but out of respect for all the years uh, Jason put into the brand, our prototypes would have to be perfect. It's like making a Mercedes Benz in the US. It has to have some the same quality or it's not worth it. So I'll, why, I'll, why are the Asian <laughs> boards like there's like what's the difference between an Asian Mercedes Benz and an American Mercedes Benz? I'll jump in right now and defend yeah. the local board builders and be like, Heath, you're not doing yourself any favors exactly. by saying if I have you locals make it, it'll be an inferior product. That's exactly where I was going with this. Like, that is a slap across the face. I know. I mean. Um, but yeah, I, I guess what I mean to say, like, look, I'm not an apologist for JS. I, what I mean to say is that it's a different thing. Like local board builders who are making customs for their consumer now need to classify JS as a different thing. That's not really their competition anymore. And maybe they would argue and say, no, actually we compete for the exact same customer. I kind of place my money in the consumer is savvy and smart enough. Maybe I'm saying this because you and I talk to listeners who are savvy and smart enough, but in my perception, the consumer knows the difference between a locally manufactured board or an imported board. And so they buy the locally manufactured one if they are discerning and they don't if they don't, you know? And so to me, I think that the consumer has the knowledge to suss it all out and it's almost, attacking a non-competitor to deface the building. That's my perspective on it, but I could be entirely wrong. And maybe the local board builder feels the imminent threat. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. The other thing too, is that he's, he's been around here for a long time. I mean, he's lived in this area for, it's not like some new guy just showed up and opened up shop. Like Heath Walker has been around for a long time. And, and I, and, and the JS brand has been here in the U.S. for a while. So it's not completely out of left field that all of a sudden just, you know, we woke up one morning and there was this crazy JS store and nobody knew what the hell it was. And, oh, my God, it's Asian. It's, you know, imported surfboards. Well, okay, I got one other caveat then. I, yeah. I'm thinking from the board builder point of view. Yeah. Why would you build, Why would you put this building in Oceanside? Like, why do it right in the hub? of domestic manufacturing with such a um what's the word building such a you know yeah it, it's just it's black it's kind of, giant right. building right in your own backyard to uh poke people in the eye yeah like, why not do it 20 minutes inland where the land's actually cheaper rent is cheaper and it wouldn't really affect the location wouldn't really you know if you're distributing nationwide it doesn't really matter if you're 20 up uh, yeah, the, the branding exercise, they may not have read the room very well here. Um, they might have thought, hey, let's just let's just knock it out of the park and here we are, you know, and that might have been a mistake. The other um, detail here, you were talking about Gary Linden. Gary obviously had a factory um, at the same location for 40 years and he got pushed out of that because they're building expensive condos essentially. So yeah. his new location is going to be right across the street from where JS's new HQ is. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about Gary not being offended by this and thinking, Hey, it's busy right now. Everybody should just be trying to fulfill orders. That's where they should be focusing their energy on. I think that arguments actually pretty short sighted 
like, look, it's not going to be busy forever. Okay. And so if somebody took the capital that they earned during the busy time and then bought up a ton of real estate in your backyard and set up distribution in your backyard, then actually that is something that you should try to navigate, you know, because you're not going to have the capital to to fight it when times are lean and they'll already be up and running. So, uh, I, I don't, you know, yeah. Just the fact that we're all busy doesn't mean that you have no worries for the rest of your life. Yeah, certainly they, um, obviously they, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't read the room. They, they probably in, in hindsight could have, could have done this a little differently and been a little bit more, I don't want to use the word stealth, which would suggest secretive, but you know, just, um, um, and I don't want to say respectful either. Just, they just could have been smarter about this, maybe, you know? Yeah. Well, but you know what? It's, it's going to probably just disappear. I, I don't, I, I don't, this is, you know, I, I do feel for the local builders, you know, but the local builders are killing it right now. And again, that is sort of, as you mentioned, short-sighted. Um, but, uh, but you ordered a new board. From who? And you sent me a DM of it yesterday. I saw a photo. Oh, yeah. No, Hank Warner. That, yeah. yeah, I got a brand new caster from Hank Warner. I've got like, I've got all of a sudden, <laughs> I swear to God, it's, I'm just a few phone calls away from having five surfboards in production. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. But I mean, this is, you are supporting the local board builder and that's, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm all about, I love the local guys, you know? Yeah. And you know, like the JS thing for me, it's like one of the guys that, that I want to see do really well. And I don't even know him really, but I just know he's a great shaper and, and a good guy. And is Chris Borst. Yeah. I, I've never actually even met him, but he has done the show. He's, he did the boardroom show a couple of times and he's Taylor Knox's um, shaper. And he's the kind of guy, he represents the kind of guy that I think this JS thing is sort of problematic because here's a guy who's building high performance, super, um, you know, refined uh, shortboards for Taylor and for a bunch of guys in Oceanside and around the world. And, and he's, and he's doing it because it's the love of his life and he's passionate and he's a, he's a, he's a good surfer and he's a great board builder. And he's, um, you know, just, he's that guy that, you know, 6,000 JS is coming in every quarter. It's just hard to, you know, compete on that price point level. So, um, you know, yeah, and he's, the, he's the type of guy that I'm like, you know what? I want Chris Borst and his family to succeed. You know, yeah. like he's an American guy, an American surfer, an American shaper, and he's good at what he does. And that's really why Sacred Craft in the Boardroom began is so that these guys can stay making a living and are a part of our community. And we see him at school pickup and we see him at the skate park and we see them at Vons and they're a part of our community and I don't want them to go away because they're a part of the culture. They're a part of the fabric. Surfboard shapers are crucial to the way that our message, the way that our culture expands. I mean, these are the guys that tell stories, you know? Um, I've never met him either, but his name has been coming up more and more and more from people who, uh, other board builders that I talk to even as somebody who's actually like engineering genius. Exactly. 
they're like, dude, the guy is like next level. And on the computer, like designing yeah. things, he's like got, he's unbelievably savvy. And, um, he's quirky. I heard, yeah, just all of these things that you mentioned. Like I've nutty, nutty professor kind of, uh, yeah. level kind of intellect. Um, so yeah, he's definitely warrants a podcast conversation as well. Add him to the list. Yeah. For um, sure. Speaking of him making yes. boards for Taylor Knox, yeah. how is your arc yeah. method workout regime going? It's going great. I'm on week four. Um, I've progressed, you know, I went and bought one of those balls. I think, I don't know if I told you, but I bought one of those cause you got to Got to have one of those balls for this. So I'm in this place now where I'm doing sort of these dynamic um, exercises where I have to keep my stability on the ball and, you know what I've really noticed? So I'm getting a sore neck as I don't know if as you age, you get a sore neck from lifting your neck up when you paddle. Right. Yeah. And this entire workout is geared towards you and I guys that are in their middle ages and we're moving towards, you know, whatever. And we need to keep strong. And so that, that whole back region of muscles, right. And lifting our head. So there's a whole series of exercises that Taylor and Paul put you through where you're basically strengthening those muscles in your back, which are all leading to your neck. Like the reason my neck sore is because my back muscles are weak as shit. And the only time I use them is when I surf for an hour every day, you know, and it's like, you know what we need to, you know, anyway, so I'm excited about moving, moving through the arc method thing. And again, because Taylor's inspiring, his surfing's inspiring. And this thing is geared towards being a better surfer. So there's a lot of, a lot of opening up of the hips, a lot of, shoulder stuff you know um it's all it's all I'm, I'm i'm stoked on it uh how long does it take you every day dude i can do this thing in 25 minutes nice it's not a cardio thing where you're like okay yeah. i gotta put in 20 minutes to get my cardio going this is just um strengthening stretching that type of deal you know what i mean my so, cardio has to get done somewhere else okay so um i started doing brad gerlach's wave key Nice. Yeah. And I wanted to do the arc method one, but I was going to be interviewing Brad and I'm like, well, I got to understand what his program is. So I sign up for it and it's different. Like you said, Taylor's is more about strength, strengthening muscle groups and stuff um, as cross training kind of to surfing. Brad's is very, very much going through surf motions. It's more, um, there's not a lot of strength training in it. It's more yoga postures they're not yoga postures, but they, if you had to compare it to anything, I would say yoga, but there's essentially 28 forms and they're exactly like you would look on a wave, like literally getting to your feet, doing that push up motion, getting into position is one of them. And you do them, the programs designed, if you're regular, it's actually really ingeniously designed the website, the way it's all laid out and the way that they feed you the programming and remember where you're at and suggest where to go from there and all that. But um, you select whether you're regular foot or goofy foot, and it has him doing it in the appropriate stance. So if you're watching the tutorial, you don't have to, in your head, switch your own stance for what's natural for you. You just watch and do left foot goes this way, right foot goes that way. But what's crazy about it is he takes it down to such a granular level, like you know how to stand up on a surfboard, right? And so do I. And he goes, no, man. He goes, when I was in my 40s, I kind of had to reinvent getting to my feet, you know? And my body is different at 40 and it, 
all everything works differently. And so having to make these adjustments and then teaching students and realizing that they all have different bodies and types and stuff that you have to then take it down to this fundamental level that would then apply to everybody. And what ends up happening is these fundamentals uh, apply if you're riding a 60 foot wave or a one foot closeout. Like that's, what's interesting about surfing is if you just kind of learn the fundamentals on a real granular level, these same body mechanics work if you're on a short board or a long board or anything in between or in a wave pool or the ocean, you know? And so, um, building the program from that level of kind of foundation is really, really fascinating for me, reassessing these very, very fundamental things. Like one of them is when you get to your feet, thinking about the angle of the board, don't just think about getting to your feet and aiming for a bottom turn, like thinking about the angle that the board's actually tipping at and your, your toes kind of touching into the foam and making that angle. Like I've never thought about the angle of the board. I just thought I want to go that way. So I'm going to lean that way. Well, it's not just leaning. It's all in your feet, you know, and certainly there's weight that you're distributing with your chest. So that's a lean, but what about your toes? What are your toes doing? Like getting down to that granular level is fascinating. And ultimately when you start thinking about it on that level, time slows down and you actually do like a wave's coming to me. And I start thinking about all of that stuff rather than being like spaced out and just going through the motions. I'm thinking about it in that granular level and it all becomes a lot more crystal crystalline. It's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Deep. You should, you should mix in some lion's mane. I, I absolutely should. You're right. I'm missing that. Well, I'm looking uh, forward to checking out. Um, Brad's always been a fascinating character and a quick anecdote. I'll tell you. Um, one time I was talking with Brad and he was, he was discussing, I, he was discussing surfing at um, HT's Lance's right. And I think he was there when Ken Bradshaw and Lane Beachley happened to be there on a, on a session. It might've been during September sessions or something. Anyway, Ken Bradshaw is having a hard time making it out of the tube. And Brad, as I recall, Brad told me this anecdote or told a group of us at Surfer Magazine that he told Ken, hey man, the reason you're not making it out of the tube is you're not looking up. You've got to look up literally look up vertically at at the wave. Don't look down, look up and point your hands up. And Bradshaw surprisingly was humble enough to take the advice and started doing it and started coming out of these little, you know, top tube cylinders at at HTs. And so it doesn't surprise me that Brad's put a ton of thought into the way that your body is, um, you know, relative the way it's positioned relative to what's happening as you ride the wave. You know, he he's he's a pretty uh, outside the box type of thinker. It, I mean, I listened to him essentially for two hours. Like, I didn't do much talking. You know, <laughs> like it it was pretty hard to wrangle. But in the end, he covered every question that I had in my notes. He yeah. just kind of zigzagged back and forth. Um, to get to them. But uh, so he, 
I thought that because he's like a style guru, I thought that he was going to be giving advice for like, you want your hands positioned this way. It's none of that. He's like, dude, your hands could be behind your back like this. And as long as you're kind of like uh, core mechanics are correct, you'll rip the crap out of a wave. And who knows? It might be cool if your hands are way back like that. I don't know. We've never seen anybody do it, but it's all about um, kind of core body mechanics. But in regard to what you're saying about looking up, he told me a story that he was in France. He was surfing Hossiger, and I think maybe it was for an event. And um, he took off on a wave and the thing was like barreling and he was looking up at where you're saying and the light was kind of coming through the lip and glistening in like a really spectacular way. And he just remembers that moment being seared into his mind, you know, just like bottom turning and looking up at that thing and just being like, wow, that's an angle and a kind of a, a visual that 99.999% of um, humans will never, ever, ever see. And I'm in this unique moment and this is spectacular, you know? And anyways, he surfs and he gets out of the water and the photographer, is like, dude, what'd you do? what are you doing barrel dodging out there? <laughs> and Brad's like, what? He goes, dude, you fully dodged that barrel. And Brad's like, I didn't even realize the wave was barreling. I was just so captivated by the beauty, you know? <laughs> and that's when he realized it was time to get off tour because he was like, man, you guys, I'm having the time of my life. And I'm like, and you guys think that I should be doing something on the wave other than me having the time of my life. Maybe I'm done with this. And that's you know what? That's a, a great segue into a moment that I had yesterday in the water. I was longboarding, super fun little waves, little peelers. And, um, and I was just, you know how sometimes you're lying on your board and you're, it's just between sets and it's quiet and you're just thinking, right? You're just having random thoughts. And I was thinking, you know, one of the greatest surf sessions that I ever had was at second point at Scorpion Bay. And the waves were one to two feet and I was on a longboard, but they were peeling and it was like a long period swell. So there was just a lot of energy behind these two footers. And I was riding these waves for 150 yards or whatever it is, super long, peeling, perfect longboard waves. And I just remember how awesome it was and how incredible it was to ride this energy. And it didn't matter if it was, Right. a six to eight foot wave. It was so much fun. And so you, you really felt alive and uh, in the moment when you knew you had a hundred more yards of this thing just spinning Amazing. and you better stay with it, you know, and you can't, you know, and, and that was one of the greatest surf sessions of my life in, in two foot, you know, two feet waves. So anyway, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I find so often my, um, the quality of the experience that I have is related to expectation. Oh yeah. And so if you see the waves are pumping and you're frothed and you start waxing your board all frantically, the session's never that good because you're, you're too, you, you've set the expectation too high, but yeah, something like that where you're just thinking, Oh, it's casual and I'll just longboard and no big deal. You go out with low expectation and then you realize what could be more fun than doing yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. It's the great paradox of life, right? It totally you, is. You want to be happy, keep your expectations low you know, and it kind of goes against this whole Western psyche of setting goals. And yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Well, Hey, uh, that's a good reminder. Thanksgiving week. Right. Oh, by the way, speaking of Thanksgiving week, what better way to give thanks than to buy a surfers are the worst t-shirt. You can get surfers are the worst t-shirts at staycovered.com. While you're there, grab a couple of leashes 
buy a board bag for a loved one in your life. Surfers are the worst t-shirts. You can get them at staycovered.com. Be good for going into Christmas too. Um, speaking of t-shirts, can you see? I noticed this. <laughs> what does it what look is it, like? What does it say? I can't tell what it says. Can you say what the logo looks like? Superman? No, hold on. A listener actually designed this for us. Oh, you're kidding. Spit podcast. <laughs> Spit podcast t-shirts made with the um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High logo. Oh my God. I don't know whether to be disgusted or completely stoked. Dude, it's perfect. It says, I love yeah, it. It says Spit Podcast. Yeah, guy. How do I so, get one? Uh, we're, I'm actually having them printed, but I'm hoping to have them before Christmas time. And we'll figure How many out. are you getting done? Do you need some money? We'll, yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk okay. about it off air. And then yeah. check this one out. Rad. <laughs> That's super cool. Also from the same listener, Surf Splendor Tees with the Clark Foam. That's really cool. logo. That's yeah. really, really cool. So, um, like, never introduced merch before. So what's the time. deal with, um, maybe we can't go behind the veil here, but is there a shortage of blanks? Cause I was surf. I'll tell you, I was surfing with Margaret Calvani from Bing surfboards. And she's like, first of all, she's like, we can't make enough surfboards. If you ordered a board from a Scott, cause I'm like, I told her, I go, Matt's supposed to be making me a board or we're going to make a board or whatever. And she's like, you're looking at, we're telling customers right now, 12 week minimum, more like 16 weeks yeah. to get a surfboard. And that's across all the entire industry. That's not just them. Yeah. And she said, she said um, that they can't keep boards in their retail outlet. They're literally for the first time ever reaching out to other board builders and going, Hey, do you want to put some boards in our shop? Like wow. stocking boards other than Bing in their shop now, or they're That's... trying to. And John over at Christensen was telling me that they're having retailers reach out to them for the first time ever and saying, Hey, if you got any boards you can put in our shop, we'd love to have them. And on top of that, I'm hearing these rumors about a foam shortage. Yeah, it's not, they're not unsubstantiated, but I think maybe they're a little bit overblown from what I've heard because I've had people reaching out to me too. Um, but essentially, you're right, that chemical shortage based on the factory out of the Gulf um, is a real thing. And so the US blanks has less of the raw material, so they have to ration out the blanks. Right. So, and it's mainly an issue for the most popular sizes. So, you know, 6.4 EA, stuff like that yeah. has to be rationed out. And people, rather than giving, you know, 100% uh, of people's order to them for the first few weeks and then having to not give people anything on the back end, it's like, oh, we'll just fulfill 80% of your order and be able to spread those more popular sizes around. Um, it's specific to poly obviously so eps is still fully available a lot of off sizes are still fully available so if people do try to order something like the 6.4 ea they'll just talk them into uh and an alternative this, is this chemical company in texas do they supply to not to all of the u.s foam builders like millennium and arctic and i don't and know to be to be honest i don't know what those companies are using but they're not u.s foam builders those uh, blanks are both made in Mexico. Oh, okay. So um, they're technically not U.S. foam manufacturers, but I don't know what they're using. Right. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. 
Well, um, I did reach out to a guy. Actually, I, I cannot believe I actually – somebody put a board in my hands at the parking lot the other day. They're like, look at this thing. It's killer number one. I'm like, you know what? You're right. I want one of these. So I reached out to the guy, uh, Roy Sanchez, a dear, good guy and a great shaper. And I'm like, hey, make me one of these, like the one you made, Rob. And he's like, okay, but, you know, you're looking at – I'm so swamped, you're looking at a long time. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, I'll reach out when you're uh, – you know, and we'll get your dims. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, hey, by the way, is there a foam shortage? And he's like, no, I'm, I have no problem getting foam. And so that was that. So well, uh, what kind of board was it? It was a seven, six, kind of like, um, just like a round board type thing, you know, okay. but like with a little bit more pulled in nose, a two plus one. Gotcha. Um, but did what? you see my new Hank Warner, that caster, that's Chris? Yeah, you have, to, you have to explain the whole board. Okay, so and and more importantly, I think what? <laughs> which what? hole does it fill in your quiver? Because I'm pretty <laughs> sure there aren't any. Okay, so as you may recall, I think the second guy that we ever honored at the boardroom was Billy Caster, and we had the icons of foam shape off, and there was a bunch of guys. I I think Timmy Patterson and Christensen and. Um, some other guy, uh, Ricky Carroll, they all competed in it. And Ricky Carroll won. And so I got the board glassed. Peter at, at Moonlight glassed it. And we got it all. And it was a Chris O'Rourke model, a caster Chris O'Rourke model, a single fin wing pin with channels. It's just like what – it was a board that we replicated that, that Bird had let me borrow. And um, – and I started riding the board. I loved the board, you know, and I was like, it was like my go-to board in the winter. It was a great winter board. It was 610. And I wrote it so much that I was kind of starting to beat it up. And I'm like, you know, I need to say I have all the winning boards in my collection, all the, all the boards that are the winners from the shape off. And I didn't want to beat this one up anymore. So I kind of put it away and I just vowed to never ride it again. And, and I went in a different direction. And then I was, I was talking to um, Hank and, and, you know, Hank's married to Bill Caster's daughter or sister, excuse me. And, uh, and I'm like, you know what? I, I need to get that board made again. He's like, I'll make it. And I'm a killer, you know? And so he's the guy, he, he's the guy that owns the caster label and knows everything about those caster designs. So I'm like, I'm just going to go straight to the source. So I had Hank make me a Chris O'Rourke model to fill that hole in my quiver of the board that I used to ride a lot. Got and, it. Now it's justified. Yeah. So and I've got, I've got another board from, I've got another one of those round pin twins coming from Ryan Sakel. And then he posted Instagram is my downfall. Cause I see these beautiful yeah, no. boards. I'm like, Oh my God, make me one. Like I, inst I message them. And then, so I've got, you know, that coming and um, I've got some other boards coming too. And it's just, yeah, I need Do to stop. It's gotten, it's getting what, what size <laughs> is the Hank Warner and tell us, it's a 610. Okay. It's, it's a, you know, rounded pin, California rounded pin with channels. And I've got the little side bites, which I had on my uh, original Chris O'Rourke, which isn't what the, that model, obviously that was before side bites were kind of a thing. It was a single fin, you know, back in 77 or whatever. But when I had the, the one glass, the, the Ricky Carroll that won the shape off, I asked Peter, I go, Peter, do you think 
what do you think about putting side bites on it? And he goes, absolutely. Bill Caster would be all about putting side bites on it. You know? And so I'm like, all right, well, if it's good enough for Billy Caster, it's good enough for me. And so that's, that's why I went that way. Nice. So it's a two plus one, like a widow maker with side bites, a single thin. I'm pretty excited about it. Have you guys been getting waves down there? No, it's been small. That's the only thing. This La Nina year, all the storms are going to be above 300 degrees. It's anything above Point Conception, it's going to be a good winter for surfing. But down here, you know, from the ranch down, it's you're looking at um, small winter surf, and um, that's kind of today is actually fun. It's it's like Murphy's Law. Every time we do a show, it seems like oh, I should I can I cancel with David because I need to go surfing right now. Well, you can go after. I can't. Um, I have other stuff I got to do. Uh, blow that stuff off. Um, (laughs) well we've been dude the last couple of weeks has been super fun up here not like winter pumping swell or anything like that but just three three to four feet like peaky waves every day kind of up and down the beach plenty of room to spread out so it's been fun yeah good um so a couple of things that we should probably clue people into i don't know if you had any other big news stories that you want to get to no the big one is the CI one Burton sold Channel Islands. All right, well I got back to Channel Islands. Yeah, I got a couple of things then. Um, I do have one more after you. No, you go then. Okay, so Hawaii has announced changes and updates to its travel restrictions. Beginning today, the governor announced that if you travel to the Hawaiian Islands and you want to bypass the 14-day mandatory quarantine, you must have COVID-19 results from a travel travel partner and here's the big part prior to departure you have to show negative prior to getting on the plane now before you could get on the plane just showing that you took the test and you were awaiting results and you would quarantine until you got back your negative result then you could just leave your hotel now you have to board the plane with a negative test in your hand and that's the big change and um, if you want more information just google hawaiian uh, travel restrictions tourism and each island in and of itself has its own restrictions in addition to what the governor has just put out. So you can't get on a plane without a negative test in your hand. And, and if you do, you're going to quarantine no matter what for 14 days. Uh, are they doing tests at the airport? It just says with our travel partners prior to departure from a trusted travel partner, you, you got to have a negative in your hand. Because I know American Airlines was doing them at the airport. Like you, you could show up, take the test. It shows ne- the instant test that's like 15 minutes long. You get the negative result and board the plane. I don't know about that, but you better um, be negative before you board or you're in for 14 days. And that is going to affect a lot of pro surfers that are about to go over for Hawaii for <laughs> Pipe Masters. Yeah, yeah we'll see. Uh, I'm still <laughs> yeah, you're not, not, not fully optimistic about that. <laughs> Okay. Fair enough. I mean, I, I want it to happen. Trust me. I'm ex- super excited for the prospect. I just, yeah. again, these things change every single day. And like the projections are that there's going to be a third crazy third wave that's going to be worse than the first two, you know? So um, have you ever been COVID tested? Yeah. I've been COVID tested twice. Okay. And I've tested negative each time and I've had two family members that have been positive and um Family members yeah. that you were that you had spent time with that live with me. Oh dang! <laughs> yeah, I'm a, you, I'm in a super spreader household here, man. <laughs> and you didn't get it. No, my wife but, and I never got it. Um, 
and we isolate or we quarantined my family members isolated in their rooms i had this like six foot long stick anytime they would like come out to use the bathroom or the kitchen i i i put the stick up and wouldn't allow them anywhere near me and i would poke them (laughs) a red hot poker yeah Uh, did uh did they get really ill no, they just had like flu symptoms for a couple of days. Actually, yeah. one of them was away at college in the Midwest. She she didn't have it here. And then my son had it here, but we kept him at bay. And he just had two days of feeling yeah. like kind of bad. And then he had eight days of just being locked into his room playing, you know, Call of Duty all right. day long. Um, what are you going to do for Thanksgiving? I'm just going to have me and my wife here at my house and um, – not doing a big group. You're going to see. No, dad, no. Right? no, no, I'm actually seeing my dad today for some stuff. I see my dad a lot. Um, you know, but for their sake and we're just, we're just going to adhere to the suggestion. Yeah. A strong suggestion that maybe this time around, we just have a small Thanksgiving. That's okay um, too. Do not- you, are you a fan of the Thanksgiving meal? I'm a fan of turkey. I'm a fan of stuffing. I'm yeah. a fan of green beans. Yeah. I'm a fan of the incredible sourdough bread that I've been baking. Nice. I'm a fan of food in general. You know what I mean? Yeah, me too. Um, but Thanksgiving, I really look forward to because it's a meal for some reason that I don't make throughout the rest of the year. Like I could easily make potatoes and stuffing and a turkey in October if I wanted to. I just don't. Uh, so I like the fact that it's just like, once a year, I'm going to get all these flavors for like three <laughs> days straight, you know? I can I, see I really you going it. big. You've probably got like truffle oils and all. You're like crazy. You're like a crazy kind of food foodie guy. Like, I, And you're good at it. You make great meals. The meals that I've seen you make look incredible. Thanks. Uh, I do take it very seriously, but Thanksgiving, you got to stick with the basics. You can't be introducing truffles into Thanksgiving. That's an Italian thing. Like, What about like oyster stuffing? Oyster? You've never heard of oyster stuffing? Is it oyster mushrooms or oysters from the sea? Oysters from the sea. No. Yeah, I would never. A, dude, it's a thing. All right. Don't, I'll look do, it up. Don't do Thanksgiving in Maine if you don't do oyster stuffing, bro. Well, there there you go. That might be the difference. I've not been to Maine. Uh, or I've not been <laughs> what, to Maine for Thanksgiving. What, is, what does Orange County stuffing look like? It's like jack-in-the-box French fries you throw in there and shit. <laughs> no, it is not. We're more traditional. Huntington uh, Beach stuffing. <laughs> First of all, I don't live in Huntington Beach, okay? And I'm kind of embarrassed by the association at this you point. You should be. You should be. Oh, if you Lord. watch the news, it's a nightmare. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, okay. So a couple of things that I want to follow up with. Yes. Uh, we, I just got an email from a listener while we were talking. Yes. Hello from Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. Yes, I am way up here in Canada. Longtime listener from way back when Scott Bass had the podcast or radio show or whatever it was. Uh, I think I sent in some money as a donation before, but I just signed up for a subscription, exclamation point. They go on to explain a bunch of their own surf history. But Scott, we have transitioned to a proper subscription service So I think the PayPal donation platform that we had set up, there's just a little bit of friction in it in that not everybody uses PayPal and you got to go to the website to do it, blah, blah, blah. You pitched the idea a couple of years ago about signing up with Patreon. And uh, 
that's a great idea, but that all exists on Patreon's platform. And a lot of the big content producers actually got off Patreon because of, um, creative decisions. Like basically Patreon was, uh, censoring content. And so at this point I'm like, look, we have like all of this technology is so easy to implement. Now we could just do it on our own. So just like magazines used to exist with subscription, uh, dollars, you know, people subscribe and then also advertising. That is kind of the model that we are pursuing. We're providing all of the same content that the magazines did. We cover contests. We interview people. We do long form interviews. We give you up to the minute news even faster than the magazines can do. So the model makes perfect sense. But the other idea is look with the sponsor, the sponsor model has its limitations in that you and I, really aren't getting paid. Like it covers costs and it helps out. But if you just factored in your surfboard expense every year, you're losing money. No doubt. (laughs) The amount of money generated from sponsor revenue isn't even enough to cover your R and D efforts. Um, so while we're grateful for sponsors, this also allows us to be a lot more discerning about who we work with. So we're super psyched to have need essentials, obviously. Um, and by the way, that Primaloft jacket, the lightweight jacket that is on sale for 30% off. Um, by the way, what is that promo code? Spit is the promo code to get 30% off the Primaloft jacket. I'm buying three of them today as holiday gifts. So listeners, if they want to get in on that 30% off promo code spit, but we're grateful for them. We're grateful for NVS fins who signed on this month, but really the subscription dollars allow us to kind of build the foundation of the business recurring revenue every month that we're guaranteed, uh, that we can guarantee to make sure, um, again, as a foundation to build the business and to be able to buy merch and stuff like that, which we're going to be introducing. So, uh, subscribers for five bucks a month, will get in, uh, complete access to the archives. I'll be locking down the current 20 episodes will be available for everybody, but everything beyond that out of the archives, our listener down in Argentina who chimed in and said (laughs) that he was starting at the end of the catalog is going to get cut off and he'll have to give us five bucks if he wants to go through the catalog. Um, but all of that guy, that guy, maybe, maybe we can grandfather him in. (laughs) Honestly, we can. And honestly, I feel like anybody who's donated to us in the past will give you a free subscription. Like this isn't a way like, honestly, I'm not trying to incentivize people to subscribe by, you know, yeah. you get access to the archives. I just feel like, look, people want to support and we need their support, especially if we want to build out the content. That's yeah. the other thing. We've proven we're willing to do this version of it as a passion project, but there's so many ideas that we haven't actually been able to implement because yeah. we can't justify it. And you have paying work and I have paying work that I have to do yeah. because, you know, so this gives us the ability to expand upon the content. Um, The other thing that we're able to do is give away product to those subscribers. So I have an album soft top surfboard, by the way, that was manufactured in the U S for a listener this month. So on December 1st, one of our donors, we will, or subscribers will just randomly select their name, put them through a raffle process, randomly select one lucky winner and they're going to win an album five, seven fish 
shape soft top. It was actually designed off of a hand shaped fish that Matt Parker made. They scan it and make the soft top out of it. The soft top has futures plugs so you can swap out fins. It's got contours. It's got two stringers in the middle of it. So it's kind of a high performance soft top or medium performance soft top is what I like to call it. Um, so it's a great way to support us and then still get, you know, the benefits of being a subscriber. You get product giveaways and stuff like that. So you can do it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Click support the show and uh, we would hugely appreciate it. Cool. Yeah. Stoked. That's great news. I'm stoked to hear that. And um, yeah. Uh, by the way, my new NVS fins, I got the album ones. Yeah. They the sent me some and I was going to put it in my Rawson, but I put it in my Wayne Rich. And oh my God, I think I sent you a text with some video yeah. footage, but it's noticeably um, fast and, and, uh, and, and, and springy and, and not, I don't want to use the word loose. I want to use the word, um, you know, it's just uh, responsive, you know, yeah, like responsive. I noticed, I, it was noticeable, you know, I took out some old fins, put in these new um, Naked Viking fins that were the album. And they're just, they're thin. <laughs> That's the thing. So honestly, everything that you just said, I've learned from them is the reason is just the thin foil. Like using the G10 material, you can make it a lot um, more compact. And so the thin foil off the front and the back creates less drag. It cuts through the water faster and creates less drag. So you go, it's more responsive because of the cutting through the water. And then it's less dra drag makes it faster, you know, less drag makes it faster. So well, I was really impressed. It's noticeable, I, and, though. Yeah, it was it's totally crazy. noticeable, and I was stoked. And I, and I mean, it, it it made me come out of the water going, God, I can, you know, like, I think I looked pretty good out there, you know, like I was doing a couple of things, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, listener feedback's been super positive with those fins too, so it's a good relationship. And by the way, their promo code is the word podcast, and I think it's 10 percent off the Apex Series fins for listeners surfnbs.com. Uh, so Scott, I've got a two must-see moments. I've got one. What is yours? Mine is that Jacob Wilcox edit oh my that was put out last week. It's crazy. Kind of Mind-blowing. I think it's called, if you want to see turns, go watch my QS replay or something like that. There's actually an in some insane turns in that video. Yeah. Where there's one or two waves in West Oz where he just lights up like seven or eight turns in a row that are all just bangers, like, like no wasted movement, just really, um, you know, no transitional bottom turns, just bang, 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 super inspiring. And then of course there are those sections, David, as you know, where he's just standing in these massive left pits and it's the winds just perfectly offshore and it's blue and green and just gorgeous. And, Mind-blowing West Oz left barrels. Jacob Wilcox is just going crazy. Um, the edit's phenomenal. He's been overshadowed by Jack Robinson, kind of from his same cohort, from that area, Jack Robinson, and now Kale Walsh even kind of is getting a lot of limelight. But Jacob Wilcox, I mean, the kid got the wild card into a couple of CT events, and he did really well. Like, he held his own against the top pros. He lost, but he didn't look rattled at all like he put up 16 point totals you know and um and this validates all of like the potential that he has had throughout his youth one another thing that brad gerlach was talking about which by the way i'm going to publish tomorrow uh 
Gerlach was talking about he loves working with kids, number one, because they're so creative, like their imagination of what you can and can't, uh, could do on a wave is unfettered. But he said also because they lack muscle. And Wilcox reminds me of that where uh, it's all about timing and it's all about technique and he looks powerful, you know? And yeah. so if, you're, if your timing and technique is right, you can blast more spray, as much spray as Taylor Knox or as much spray as Connor Coffin or whatever. And Jacob's a great example of that. He hasn't bulked out yet, but he looks like a power surfer. Yeah. It's incredible surfing. and It really uh, is. Yeah. I mean, I know that we're, we live in a world of in, lots of incredible surfing, uh, but you know, this is a moment where the waves are the stars and the surfing is the star and they sort of co-mingle. Yeah. You know? Well, you nailed it. Uh, your musty moments mesh with mine because mine are two. One is a new edit that just came out from Puerto Escondido this week. It was on Stab. It's called No Leash and a Tiny Board at Solid Puerto Escondido. Uh, which, by the way, what's up with these titles? The one that you just read, too. <laughs> <laughs> these are the opposite of clickbait. They're like paragraphs. Yeah. But with the waves that Jacob Wilcox is surfing, they're big, scary, powerful waves that he's shredding on. This is great to see this Puerto footage again. It's 8 to 10 feet and, you know... It's gnarly. And, and then I have another clip that's Moondaka for the exact same reason is I love seeing these iconic surf spots come to life at this time of season that you kind of forgot about, or maybe they even fell out of fashion for a few years. And you love to see them kind of firing and people riding big boards, stroking in and setting a line and pulling it. Like it's yeah. so sick. It, it's timeless, you know? So, Absolutely. Yep. That Moondaka footage, as you know, when Nazare was pumping a couple of weeks ago or whenever it was, um, Moondaka was firing. And as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, I would just go into the Surfline Moondaka cam and just yeah. be mesmerized because the amount of waves, it had that sort of marching queued up, 15 waves rolling in. You know, you could see them coming in for a quarter mile. It was just fascinating. Man, that's a spot. I've never surfed it, but if you are not on your A game in, term of, in terms of athleticism, you don't no. stand a chance. No, you don't. And as crowded as the lineup looks, make no mistake, you can get waves out there if you are athletic and at the top of your game. Yeah. The other thing about it is it looks like there's slow spots and fast spots. Yeah. So you really need to be on the right equipment and know how to surf yeah. to be able to make a yep. wave there. Yep. Agreed. Have you surfed it? No, but it's an experts only wave in yeah. numerous regards. Totally. Uh, all right. So my Duke of the week goes back to our Mount Rushmore conversation. Oh, okay. I have a new addition. All right. Lay it on me. One that could potentially replace Velzy. And this came from a listener, but Matt Warshaw seconded it. Okay. Gidget. Yeah, I've heard this one. Um, so go ahead. What, what's the, well, convince me, convince me on Gidget. So I, by the way, had to research Gidget as popular as she was, it was prior to my time. So it was kind of like, it fell on deaf ears when I was coming up. I was like, oh, I know who that is, but whatever, I don't care. So as I read from the Encyclopedia of Surfing, I was fascinated by her life. Uh, first of all, do you know where her nickname came from? Yeah, it's Girl Midget. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that. 
<laughs> Why are you surprised? <laughs> That's funny. It is. That's exactly where it came from. It's hilarious. All right. So Gidget was the nickname for Kathy Corner of Brentwood, California, whose slightly fictionalized life as a teenage surfer neophyte at Malibu in the mid-50s became a durable pop culture phenomenon, branching into books, movies, comics, TVs, theater. It was Gidget along with the Beach Boys, who gave surfing its most memorable turn in the Great American Youth Culture Parade. Gidget was born in 41 in Los Angeles, raised in Brentwood. Her parents were well-to-do Czechoslovakian Jews who had fled fled the Holocaust. Her father was a PhD in psychology at the University of Vienna. He became an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter and Broadway playwright. He occasionally taught classes at the University of California, actually UCLA and USC. Gidget herself, Kroner, she was five foot, 95 pounds. She was a 10th grader and she began surfing in Malibu in the summer of 56 and became, in her words, a group mascot for the locals at the time. Um, She was said to look like a girl midget, so... Uh, Terry Tubestake Tracy is the one who came up with that nickname. She spent her summer days learning how to surf and trying her best to fit in with the Malibu crew, in part by distributing a bottomless supply of homemade sandwiches, then went home and relayed to her parents in long, gushing, teen squeak soliloquies uh, the day that she had had at Malibu. So it was actually the idea of her father to do, do a book about her Malibu life. And the project only took her six weeks to write in 1957. And then uh, that became the first novel, which was just titled Gidget. So it was published in hardcover. And Life Magazine did a follow-up series on the book called Gidget Makes the Grade, along with a photo feature showcasing her at Malibu with that crew of surfers hanging out in the sand. Life Magazine reported that among surfers themselves, the novel made hardly a ripple if they had a couple of books to if they had a couple of bucks to buy the book oh if the novel didn't make a ripple because if people had a couple of bucks they would just buy beer instead of the book but it was the life magazine series that actually really took off so the book ended up becoming a movie kroner herself actually abandoned surfing altogether and enrolled in oregon state college And when the film, by the time the film came out, she was already up in Oregon, completely removed. She said, my ego was never tied into being Gidget. I was just a girl who surfed and the guys named me Gidget and I left everything and it all kind of took off and took a life of its own. After college, she returned back to California, married a Yiddish scholar. She had two kids. She worked as a bookstore clerk, a travel agent, a restaurant hostess. With surf world nostalgia on the rise in the 80s, first edition copies of Gidget were selling for $1,000. Kroner finally embraced her surf alter ego, began selling black and white reproductions of her Malibu scrapbook and photographs. She founded a Gidget line of postcards. She was featured on the cover of Wahini Magazine in March of 99. And later that year, Surfer Magazine named her the seventh most influential surfer in history. If not for that pervasive Gidget myth, however homogenized Surfer Magazine wrote, American youth would have missed one of the most potent archetypes available in the early 60s, a rebellion based not on angst or anger, but on joy, end quote. Yeah, 
she's in the conversation. Does she replace Del Velzi? See, to me, Gidget is more um, an ideal or um, it's not like the person that is the power here. It's really that they created a a media establishment in books and in some magazine articles, but in movies, right? In the movies, there was always a Gidget archetype um, in a lot of those surf romps. And, and so it's suggested that those surf romps helped fuel that first kind of wave of hard goods sales in the early 60s. And, you know, from a, so I see it as more like, okay, so she was kind of a part of uh, an impetus for a commercial successful uh, wave, right? And um, I would argue that, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not going to argue against Gidget, but I don't think it's the person. I don't think it's Kathy. I think it's the ideal and what it represented that it it gave sort of like middle class teen kids around the world an opportunity to be one of that that it was okay to be this person. Um, so anyway, I I don't think it's on the Mount Rushmore. I don't think you can have an ideal. I think you need to have people, and and I just see Gidget as more of a like I said, it's an ideal rather than. That's its power. Its power is in what the movie and the book and everything represented, not in the actual person. And all of that, as you've stated, was manufactured by not Gidget herself. Like Gidget was a person and she was this thing here for a moment in time. But the archetype that was developed was all from media that weren't even surfers. And then portrayed it outwardly and that's what everybody kind of thinks of as Gidget but when you look at the person it wasn't like she was a phenomenal surfer or anything like that and I think that that has to be factored into being chiseled in granite yeah and and I mean frankly I think her father is more of a powerful suggestion for Mount Rushmore than she is her father is the one that created Gidget her father wrote well, the, the yeah the lore of yeah of his daughter's life so anyway, well, um, she's still my Duke. I, I just enjoyed reading about her and learning about her. And I, by the way, didn't read five paragraphs from Matt's EOS.surf. Um, so if you do want to do a deep dive into Gidget, there's much more on there to see and to watch. But interesting figure for sure. Yeah, Kathy, she's a very nice person. I've met her numerous times. She's, she's often at the boardroom show and... Um, I'll point her out to you next time and I'll introduce you to her. Yeah. When you do, I'll be like, yeah, by the way, Scott said you don't deserve to be on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> no, you do, but you're in line. You're like number 15 and there can only be four. Yep. All right. Scott. I got an, I got an email from her on Instagram that said, what about Warshaw as the guy? Yeah. That's the guy who actually mentioned Gidget too. That's saying. Oh, email. really? Yeah. Yeah. But you notice he spelled it Warsaw. Yeah, I did. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Um, all right, Scott. Well, hey, yeah. enjoy your Thanksgiving. Be grateful this week. Yeah, grateful every day. A good way to start each and every day is with a gratitude. Um, so, yes, I'm with you on that. When you own 200 surfboards, what is there to not be grateful about? Man, there's a problem there, you know. There's got to be serenity without material possession. I will say since implementing the um, subscription model, which I launched, I think last Wednesday, listener feedback has been so kind. I've been getting emails from people who are like, dude, like 
you guys have been crushing it forever. I want to support the work. Like just really nice individual engagement with people uh, who have very nice things to say. And that one that I read was one of them. Speaking of nice things to say, you put up some footage of me surfing, which is just vanity PB before sanity. I mean, it. I, there was a bunch of um, <clears throat> really nice comments and feedback on that Instagram post that you put out there. That was very kind of you, David. Can you believe that was three years ago? I know, right? It was oh. honestly November 21st. The day I published it was three years to the day. Like crazy how fast time goes. I know. It's this year in particular seems to be going pretty quick. It's nuts. Yeah, man. All, All right. right. Well, until next week, David, adios and aloha. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down a road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Shame to say, I hope it always will stay this way. My hat is off, won't you stand up and take a bow?
like you for being a 